0: had good times of fellowship together already around the word of God and Pastor Moore and I have discovered we agree on a whole lot of things but not football and uh, maybe yet he will grow in grace and change his position but I'm not going to say any more than that I support the team that has won more Premier League titles than any other team I'm not going to say any more. Than that. Esther chapter 5, and uh, we're going to try and cover chapter 5 and 6 tonight. They're not particularly long chapters, and uh, try to get through them this evening. We've noted already that God has started to come after Esther and Mordecai. And what seemed to be going well at the beginning, in fact, for a number of years, is now not going the way they anticipated. Like Eve, she discovered when she took the fruit that it looked nice to the eye and to the imagination but turned sour in her stomach. And Esther and Mordecai are discovering that compromise with sin costs. We have to give Esther credit, however, and Mordecai to a lesser extent, that both of them are responding to the chastisement of God. A lot of believers never do, but at least this pair have begun to waken up. And I was thinking last night as I was going up the road uh, that previously Esther won her position as Queen of Persia by using her seductive charms over Hashirahs. Encouraged by Mordecai, using her feminine wiles to seduce this man and win the prize as his queen. But it's a different Esther now. She's not using her feminine wiles, she's fasting. She's asking others to fast. And Mordecai is humbling and seeking the help of God, I believe, in this situation. And they're growing. They're maturing. And sometimes, you know, we can be too quick to cut people down and say, well, this person or that person, they didn't start out well in life, particularly young people. And we say, there's no hope for that person. I can only see a disaster coming. Well, you never would have guessed That Esther would have emerged so quickly in chapter 4 and 5 when you saw her in the first few chapters of this book and she certainly has changed and you're going to see a new Esther an Esther that shows great wisdom great care, prudence doesn't rush into anything you're going to see an Esther of great determination and courage An Esther not seeking to win a prize for her own benefit, but for her people. A selfless Esther emerging. And Esther responding to the prompting of this man Mordecai and pointing her to the justice of God and the providence of God. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says, Now it came to pass on the third day. That Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the city of the house. And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther, what is thy request? It shall be even given thee to the half of the kingdom. And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, Let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee, and what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them. And I will do tomorrow as the king has said. Then went Haman forth that day, joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up, nor moved for him; he was full of indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh his wife. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and the, all the things wherein the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman said, "Moreover, yea, Esther the queen." Did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow am I invited unto her also with the king. Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then said Zeresh his wife and all his friends unto him, Let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high. And tomorrow speak thou unto the king, that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. On that night could not the king sleep. And he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles that they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Thana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor and dignity have been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman was come into the outward court of the king's house, to speak unto the king, to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said unto him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delighteth to honor, let the royal apparel be brought which the king useth to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head. Let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man withal whom the king delighteth to honor. Bring him on horseback through the street of the city and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Make haste and take the apparel and the horse as thou hast said and do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Then took Haman the apparel the horse, and arrayed Mordecai, brought him on horseback throughout the street of the city and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate, but Haman hasted to his house mourning, having his head covered. Haman told Zerish, his wife, and all his friends everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men and Zerish his wife, unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but thou shalt surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. Amen. And God will always add a blessing to the public reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that even in this chapter we get an insight to the hand of God at work in the lives of his people. We see man plotting and planning, man seeking to destroy and defy God's people and God's will And yet even as we come to the end of chapter 6, we see Mordecai no longer in the torn clothes of mourning, but we see the enemy of God's people humiliated and in mourning. We get a little picture of what it's going to be like when we come to the end of this world, that God's people ultimately triumph because we're on the winning side. We've got the victor leading us home to glory. Bless your word. Use it to strengthen our faith and build it up. Use it to inspire us to live better, to walk better. Convict us where we have done things that we shouldn't have done. Bring us back to where we should be For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, remember to Esther's great credit, she didn't have to do any of these things that we read in chapter 5 and chapter 6. She was safe behind the palace walls. No one knew even that she was a Jew apart from Mordecai. And she could have continued to live a life of luxury, a life of sin behind these palace walls. And to approach this man, Ahasuerus, a ruthless, bloodthirsty, volatile tyrant who has already demonstrated that when he tires of one wife, he has no problem casting her aside and taking another. And yet Esther is determined to do the right thing. And if she loses her life, if she loses her crown, if she loses her position, that's a sacrifice this young woman has decided to make. Now to approach Ahasuerus was fraught with difficulty. It was difficult for a number of reasons. Number one, she has to break the law in effect to approach him. She's not been summoned. And to approach Ahasuerus without permission risks the death penalty. Number two, she has to admit in approaching Ahasuerus on this issue that for the last number of years, since she met Ahasuerus, she has been deceiving him about her identity and about her background. Number three, she has to persuade a proud, arrogant man to reverse a stance that he has made publicly. That's not going to be easy. Nebuchadnezzar, or sorry, Ahasuerus is not a man who backs down who says sorry who publicly changes his mind and upon top of that it's a decision that will cost him face but it will cost him revenue because Haman has written him a big check money that he needs to prosecute any future wars against the Greeks number four It's also a difficult task for Esther because, in approaching the king like this, she has to face down one of the most cunning, deceitful, dangerous men to ever walk this earth, Haman. A man not to be underestimated. A man who's managed to get himself to the top of the greasy pole by his satanically inspired deception cleverness, wickedness. And Esther has to lead Ahasuerus down a path where he's going to lose some face one way or another. And that's difficult. It's difficult for a young woman. She has no experience of such matters. She has no one to guide her in such matters. Daniel at least had his three friends, didn't he? That he could pray with. That he could get together and say, let's get a hold of God together. But Esther's alone. Now, we're told that she goes in to see the king. And she changes her dress. She puts on the royal apparel. After a period of days of fasting, about 40 hours... And such fasting wouldn't help her appearance. In fact, it would hinder her appearance. It has a spiritual dimension, clearly. She's no longer relying on her feminine charms. She now knows, I need God in my life. I need God in this situation. And she comes in before the king, and this is a very tense moment. Sometimes we forget that because we know the end of the story from the beginning of the story... We know what's going to happen, but she doesn't. She doesn't know if this tyrant who has not summoned her for many weeks as his wife, who's chasing after other women, has not yet, has got tired of her or not. She doesn't know. She knows that this is a breach of protocol and a man like Ahasuerus has already cut off one wife. For an apparent public breach of royal protocol. So it's a very tense moment for Esther. But you know. The breach of the protocol works. Because the king holds out the scepter to here. And he asks her this question. What wilt thou Queen Esther? What is thy request? And it shall be even given thee to the half of the kingdom. Ahasuerus knows, being a man of experience, she hasn't approached him like this. She hasn't risked her life like this for an insignificant matter. There's something bothering her that's of such a material importance to her that she has taken this step. And he gives this exaggerated promise. Whatever you want, up to half of my kingdom, you can have Esther. Such a response must have encouraged Esther. God is really gracious with this young woman in helping her through this situation. But Esther doesn't immediately reveal her hand. She shows great patience and great wisdom in this matter. And she says to the king in verse 4 If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared. For him. She has thought this through very well. Sometimes people think when they read this, Oh, Esther lost her nerve. No, I don't think so at all. Some ask the question, Well, why then did she procrastinate? Why did she delay? Why didn't she just come out with it? Well, let me suggest to you a number of reasons. And of course we remember that she's been fasting for a number of days. And I believe in prayer for a number of days because the two things go together. Seeking God's will and seeking God's help and God's intervention in this situation. And I believe she delayed her eventual request at this moment for a number of reasons. Let me suggest a few. Number one, she's aware that Ahasuerus has been caught off guard by her approach and she needs to present her final request in a more favourable moment than this. Number two the Persians and particularly Ahasuerus love banquets and if you're going to ask the king to swallow something that he, he's going to lose face in and financially from you want to make it as sweet as possible don't you you're dealing with an ungodly sinner and Esther very wisely has said well let's wait until it's a better environment the king's more relaxed number two she knows Ahasuerus will lose face and lose money in this encounter if he grants her request and in doing that she knows it's more likely that he'll be willing to lose those two things if it's not done in public but done in private. See how wise she is? Let's do this privately. Not before all the royal officials. Not before all the wise men of Persia that are in the king's palace at this moment. But let, let's do this just the king and myself and him. So no one can... Gossip about it. The king will not be humiliated because hopefully when the end of this process, the only three people on earth will know what was transpired will be the king, Haman, and hopefully he'll be dead, and herself. Number four. I believe she understood there would be less distractions in a private setting. This was a serious matter. She couldn't afford... Anything to interrupt it. Or the king to be distracted by something else. She needed his focus. Number five. Delay will show Ahasuerus how serious she is. That This is a really important matter. This is not a trivial thing. This is something that really mattered to her. Number six. Maybe God revealed this to her in her fasting prayers that this was the technique this was the methodology that would be prudent for her to adopt in this situation number seven in delaying it will give him a false sense of security puff his pride even more unnerve him then at the critical moment in an unexpected way lastly We'll discover in chapter six that providence is working through the delay because God had a higher purpose in saving Mordecai through the dream or keeping the king awake in the next chapter. God wanted that delay in this situation. So for all these reasons and no doubt more that you could think of, I believe Esther was led to delay this I believe she was very wise and prudent in how she handled it in fact as you read through the book of Esther right to the very end you see a totally different Esther now and she's a very shrewd and wise woman and Mordecai fades further out of the background and she becomes far more of an adult making her own decisions and making wise decisions The more you analyse her strategy here, you have to admire her nerve and her wisdom and her determination. Now, she understands that there's a risk here because postponing this gave Haman the opportunity to discover her real reason, to investigate her background maybe, Work out what she's up to because Haman is a cunning guy, a resourceful guy. But she believes that the risk is worth taking. Now Haman goes home. And the Bible says in verse 9, he goes home full of pride. Oh, he's happy, joyful heart. He's delighted that he has been chosen of all the people in Persia The king favors him, and now the queen favors him. Well, I can't get any better than that. And the queen has chosen in this public way to invite him to an intimate dinner, banquet with her and the king. And of course, a proud man like Haman, he's not content simply to let his wife know. He calls all his friends, no doubt, people that he hoped to show how great he was and put them in their place and let them know he's more powerful than them and more significant than them and he brings them and we're told in verse 11 he told them of his riches and his children and the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants oh he, he's just full of it like these movie stars, pop stars, being interviewed by some half-wit on the television, isn't it? Just can't stop talking about themselves. How wonderful they are. And they want everybody to know how special they are. How wealthy they are. And how popular they are. And you notice all the pronouns. He says, and Haman said, moreover, never, yeah, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she ever had, but myself. Oh. As you read through Haman's words, you see this all over it. I, my, me. It's all about him. The pride of man personified in this man's Haman. But then in verse 13, he says, Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. In other words, he says, despite all the things that I have, a foreigner who's been elevated to such a position, and honoured by the king and the queen, and given so much riches and honor and power, it can't satisfy me because a person has insulted me. Someone won't respect me. And what a picture there of the emptiness and the vacuousness of the lives of the ungodly. That it doesn't really satisfy. That it just takes one little thing that day to upset them and suddenly at all their pleasure and all their happiness dissipates just like that. But then verse 14 said, Then said Zerish. His wife and all his friends unto him. You know, it's very important who you marry. Because you're going to see a tale of two wives in this book of Esther. Well, three wives, but two in particular. And one wife, Esther, is going to be the means of doing great good to her husband, to his legacy. But another wife, Zerish, is going to be a means, an instrument of doing great evil to her husband and his legacy. It's also important who your friends are because Haman's friends are going to be his worst enemies here. Because they're going to advise him to do something. That will increase his humiliation in the end. Increase his destruction. But he just doesn't know it. And if you hang around with the wrong folk, if they're your friends, they'll give you the wrong advice. If you marry the wrong person, they'll guide you in the wrong way. And Zeresh and his friends are going to be the means of a greater humiliation of this man, Haman. And the humiliation will begin in chapter 6, but it won't end there because by the end of the book of Esther, their advice will mean that he is not just shamed, but shamed in the most public way. On the very gallows, the public gallows that he constructed upon their advice. And this is the thing pleased Haman. Because in his arrogance and his presumption. He didn't factor God. Into his thoughts. He never thought that God could change the direction of his plans. He thought he had already won. Like a child runs off with a smile again. Half insulted, Just a few minutes before. And that's Haman. If you live your life uh, on the popularity and the whim of the ungodly, and the material possessions of the things around you, that's what you're going to have—an emotional roller coaster of a life, up and down, up and down. Happy one moment, the king seems to favor you, and the queen invites you. Then upset because someone looks sideways at you. Oh, then happy again because your friends suggest a way of taking vengeance on the person who slighted you. That, it's just him and up and down. The emotional roller coaster of the ungodly, because his heart and his mind is not fixed on something that's eternal. King David said that, didn't he? My heart is fixed on thee. The old hymn says, I've anchored my soul in the haven of rest. When you're anchored to something that outlasts this world and outlasts the world to come, Oh, you you can be content when the whole sea is in turbulence around you. I love that Acts chapter 16 story where Paul finds himself in Philippi. Finds himself in jail. And he's in the inner prison. And his feet are tied to the stocks. And the idea of those stocks is that the legs are stretched so that you can't sleep. You're discomforted permanently. And his back has been lashed. And no doubt there's infection and fever setting in. He's hungry. He's in the dirtiest, filthiest, darkest part of the prison. And I'm sure the devil has come to him and whispered in his ear and says, Paul, you're going to die. In Philippi. And nobody knows. And nobody cares. And you had a revival over in Turkey. In Asia Minor. And you, you saw this vision to come over into Europe. And you've come and there's been no revival. Here you are dying in the prison. And if you don't die from the infection, you'll have your head chopped off tomorrow. Tomorrow. I'm sure the devil was whispering that in his mind, his thoughts. What does Paul do? Remember, Paul is the one who wrote these words, for we know that all things, all things, not some things, not the good days only, but all things work together for good to them that love God. Now the question for Paul is, do you really believe it? you really believe it? Paul's the one who said, Rejoice, I say unto thee. And again I say, rejoice. Do you really believe it, Paul? What do we read in Acts chapter 16? It says, At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed. Well, we kind of understand that. You'd expect an apostle to say a few prayers in a time of need. In a crisis like that. But it's what it comes after that is really what's surprising. Because it says not only did they pray. But it says they sang praises. And the Greek there is very graphic. Because the Greek tense that's used there it is the tense that means they continued and continued and continued to sing. Praises unto the Lord. Why was Paul able to do that? Because Paul not only said all things work together for good to them that love God. Paul believed it. Paul lived it because his life, his heart was fixed on something that couldn't be shaken by external circumstances. His happiness didn't depend on the room he had to stay in that night. And of course, is the very opposite. And that's why he's all over the place emotionally. We have all these emotional roller coaster people today, don't we? even in the church. And the big buzzword is what mental health. That's, that's what they keep telling you. Now there may be people who have legitimate mental issues because of physical disability or illness. I don't dispute that. But what constitutes what is called mental health today is really a sin health problem in the most part. You'll discover that there's lives who are not anchored to the rock that cannot be moved. And young people, especially, are running from one thing to the next, trying to find hope, trying to find a cause to live for, trying to find a purpose and a meaning when the purpose and the meaning and the cause to live for is here, isn't that right? Paul says, For what? For me to live is what? Christ. To live the life of Christ. And to die is just gain, go to heaven. That's my life, that's my purpose. Not looking for one. I have one. Now I've been distracted slightly. I have two chapters to get through tonight. Make sure you get your money worth for this week. Let's go to chapter 6. Because as we enter chapter 6, never had things looked so dark for the children of God. Haman is strutting around like a peacock. He has the favor of the king and it seems he has the favor even of the queen. However, the greater the evil, the greater the danger, the greater will be the deliverance. And although the Jews and Mordecai and Esther don't really know what to do or how it's going to unfold. There's one sitting in the heavens who does. Well, he knows. And he hasn't gone to sleep. When everybody else has gone to sleep that night. And he's at work. God's not impressed by the little hymn. Of this world. We're very impressed. We're very intimidated, but God's not. God's not. And as the king goes to sleep that night, God starts to work on the king and stops him sleeping. Isn't it interesting that you can have all the wealth and the power and the popularity and the medical treatments and the entertainment? Of this world. You can have the nicest bed to sleep in, but if God takes the sleep from you, you can't sleep a wink. You ever think about that? God's letting Hashiris your know you're not really in, in charge. I'm in charge. And then we're told when the king couldn't sleep, he does a very surprising thing. He doesn't ask for his musicians, he doesn't ask for the sleeping pills. He doesn't ask for a more comfortable bed. What does he ask for? The records of the kings, the dry, talk about dry reading material. Be read for him. Now, as you read this chapter, if you ever see a chapter with the fingerprints of God all over it, it's this chapter. The king can't sleep. Why? Bad luck? Coincidence? No. God incidents. And the king calls not for the entertainment or the drugs or the sleeping pills. He calls for the book of the records. Coincidence? No. Providence. And then when they bring the books out, and no doubt they're large books, what portion do they read? The portion pertaining to Mordecai's. Act of bravery and loyalty to the king. And then the king says in verse 3, what honor and dignity have been done? The king actually asks. Is that a coincidence? That the king even cared about it? That the king was even moved about it? No. God was at work. And his people tell him, and then the next question in verse 4. Can't you see the fingerprints of God again? The king says, who's in the court? Why would he ask? What, what prompted him to ask such a thing? The prompting of God. He says, who's in the court? And who happened to be in the court that day, in that place, at that time? None other than, amen. And why is Haman there? He's coming to ask permission of the king to kill Mordecai, to murder Mordecai. <coughs> Mordecai only has a few hours to live, humanly speaking. He's at his, his most dangerous moment in his life and yet the hand of God's at work. And he's a safe as you and I are. Because he's in the hand of God. Where was Daniel. safest that night in the den of. In the Babylon. In Daniel chapter 6. You know the safest place for Daniel was in the den of lions. Because there he was in the center of God's will. God's hand was upon him. The same for Mordecai. He's safe. Because God's at work. And Haman comes. And the king asks Haman this question. Now, what led the king to ask this question? What prompted him to ask it? And what prompted Haman to respond in this way? Yes, it was the pride of Haman. Yes, it was the arrogance of Haman. But underneath it, what was working behind the scenes? The hand of God. He comes out with a spiel, doesn't he? Oh, if the king delights to honor, let him ride on the king's horse and wear the king's clothes. And let the most honored of the king's officials proclaim everywhere in a public way. Thus shall it be done to the man that the king delighteth to honor. And all Haman is doing in his pride is setting himself up for a bigger fall, a bigger humiliation. And he doesn't even know it. Oh, this is going to be a day of great surprises for Haman. Because his eye is not on the one who controls time. His eye is not on the one who, who has hands working through providence. Haman can only think in the immediate, in the visual. And you know it's hard not to smile at verse 10. When the king says to Haman. Make haste. And he says, take the apparel and horse as thou hast said, and do even so to Haman. That's what he was waiting to hear. That's what he expected to hear. And the king says, no, to Mordecai, the Jew, as if rubbing salt into the wound of the humiliation, the foreigner, the one you hate the one who refuses to submit to you, you go and you honor him. And you magnify him in this kingdom. And to make it matters even worse, the king says, you do it publicly. And Haman, being a master of deception, he's able to cover up his anger and his humiliation because he knows this guy, Ahasuerus, is not someone that you can likely disobey. He goes. And he does it. But he comes home. A different Haman than when he left home. He says, we told in verse 12, he came home quickly. Mourning. Having his head covered. Whereas Mordecai came again to the king's gate. See the difference in the two of them? He comes home. And this public humiliation is a bitter pill for the proud Haman to swallow. And he talks to his wife and to his friends and tells them what has befallen him. And the amazing thing is this. These wise men, for the first time, are wise. And Zerish, for the first time, shows some wisdom in her advice of Haman. Maybe secretly they're happy that he's been put in this place. I'm sure he's insufferable to live with. And these Persians are superstitious people. And they said to Haman, This is a bad omen for you, Haman. In fact, they. Say to this, if Mordecai or since Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou has begun to fall, you're on your way down, Haman. You're in dangerous ground, Haman. You've not just simply taken your hand against an individual who you dislike. You put your finger a Jew one of God's people one who is the possessor of the covenant promises standing behind Mordecai is not simply an army of Hebrews is the king of the Hebrews is the God of the Hebrews and remember what happened to Pharaoh when he tried to take them on and said, "Who is the Lord? And God showed Pharaoh who the Lord was, and left him as fish food at the bottom of the Red Sea. Oh well, Pharaoh discovered who God was, too late. And Haman should have been listening to this advice, and they said to him, "Thou shalt not prevail against him. thou shalt surely fall before him." I tell you, these are strong words, aren't they? You know, as I was reading these, I was thinking, isn't God so gracious to him? Because even in the warnings of those who were near to him, dear to him, those that he acknowledged were wise, God was using the words of these ungodly people To warn him. God was using the circumstances to warn him. And Haman was given an opportunity here to repent before it was too late. But like so many of the ungodly, he just wouldn't listen, would he? He just wouldn't pay attention. Yes, he was humiliated but he just wouldn't listen this should have been a red light flashing for him and stop before it's too late reminds me of the story of lot and the angels in sodom when the men of sodom tried to attack The angels and the angels smote them with blindness. And as one commentator said, they got a taste of hell before they were there. Darkness. Yet what does the Bible say instead of repenting? They scrambled to see if they could work their way to the door in the darkness and the blindness. And even after they didn't prevail on that, they continued on. Until the fire fell from heaven. Wiped them out. Think of that story in uh, that statement in the book of Revelation. When God pours out the judgment in the great tribulation period. And what do these ungodly sinners do? They go and hide in the rocks and the mountains. In the caves. They blaspheme God as their destruction draws nigh. No repentance. Haman's just like that. God is always faithful to his promises. Always. That's why I'm a premillennialist. It's one of the reasons, because I believe when God says something, he really means it. Frederick the Great was the emperor of Germany. He asked his chaplain one day, he said, Can you tell me? Of a good reason or good reasons why the book that you claim, the Bible, is true. And the chaplain said, I can tell you in one word why this Bible is true. Oh, said Frederick, I'm very intrigued. You can almost hear all the officials suddenly listen him. What's he going to say? And the chaplain said, here's the word. That demonstrates the truth of this book. Jews. Jews. Because God's promises to the Jews. Never fails. Has never failed. Continues to never fail. And will never fail in the future. That's why. Of all the races. On the earth that have come. And gone in the Middle East and disappeared in time and nations and kingdoms. And you go through the list of the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Gergesites and the Hivites, where are they? Gone into history. Where are the descendants? Disappeared. Where are the Moabites and the Edomites and all the rest of them? Disappeared. But if you were to go to Belfast, you don't have to go to the Middle East. Go to Belfast, go to Ballymena, go to Dublin, and you'll discover the race of people called the Jews are still evident, still living, still a distinct race from all the other races on the earth, still preserved. And now, after 2,000 years, back in their ancient homeland, back in control of the city of Jerusalem, coincidence, luck, I hear some Christians say God has no purpose for the Jewish people or the nation of Israel. Well, I don't know what Bible you're reading. You must be blind. Even the ungodly in this land know there's a reason and a purpose that this tiny little race of people on the earth remain distinct to this day and preserved to this day. I was in a rabbi's house in Jerusalem some years ago with a group from Singapore on the Sabbath evening or the eve of Sabbath, as they would call it, a Friday evening. And we had spent almost two weeks in the Holy Land. And if you've never been to the Holy Land, this is the time to go, it be cheap. Okay, and go. It's probably the safest time to go. So you go. Don't be put off. And if you die there, so what? Praise the Lord. It's a good place to die and be buried. But we were there, and we were there two weeks, and we had gone through all the various sites, and that day we had visited the Yad Vashem Museum, where it records all the persecutions of the Jews and the Holocaust and all the pogroms and hatred of anti-Semitism throughout the centuries in all the different cultures and centuries and continents. And the rabbi asked us this, what have you learned in the fortnight in Israel? What, What are the things that have stood out to you? And everybody had a chance to say, and many of the people talked about how blessed they were to walk where Jesus walked, and certainly that was an amazing part of it. But I thought to myself, what stood out to me, particularly that day that we had spent? And I said to the rabbi in front of the whole group and his family were there, I said, there's two things that stand out to me from my time in Israel. Number one, the hatred, the attacks on the Jewish people. Throughout the centuries, it cannot be explained by a naturalistic explanation, such as economic envy or racial animus. But there has to be a supernatural force behind it because of its consistency. Throughout the centuries, throughout the continents, throughout the cultures. That's the first thing. But I said the second thing that strikes me is that the preservation of the Jewish people throughout the centuries can only have occurred because of a supernatural force. And that that supernatural force that is preserving them is greater than the force that opposes them. Oh, that's still true, isn't it? And you're seeing it all around the world. The Satan has his people whipped up. Irish people. Can you, have you ever heard the like of it? Waving their Palestinian flags and Screaming from the river to the sea. Shouting statements of genocide against the Jewish people. It's the only group that you can spill hate against and the police will stand and applaud you. Isn't that right? Almost. Can't, you can't say anything about any other religious group or racial group. Or some other weird group. That they divide society in amongst. But you can say what you like about the Jews and nobody will touch you. Why? Because what you're seeing in Esther chapter 5 and Esther chapter 6, the hatred, the animus, is still ongoing. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is coming to touch his feet on the Mount of Olives. And who is coming to receive him when he comes back? (coughs) Zechariah 12 verse 10. And they will pour upon them what? The spirit of grace. Supplication. They shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Well Satan reads the Bible. He can't stop the first coming now. But he's determined to stop the second coming, isn't he? But just as he failed in Esther chapter 6, and he failed in the first coming, he's going to fail in the second coming. Absolutely. Guaranteed. The last chapter of the history of this world has already been written. And no one will be able to erase it or change it or amend it. It's fixed. Absolutely fixed. Don't need to go and see the tarot cards or the clairvoyants or the astrologers. It's all here. The end's written and it's fixed. You know, it seems that it's over with for the Jews. Here and even today, doesn't it? But just at the 11th hour, we're going to discover next time. God's going to step in. And God's going to save them. And what we are going to learn today as they learned in Mordecai's day, that God's delays are not God's denials of his promises. What a difference a day is going to make in this story. Too often we are impatient, but God's not impatient. The Jews are God's prophetic clock, his prophetic timepiece and they're chiming very loud very loud I preached a sermon recently, how much time have we left for the world and I stated publicly that I don't believe there's very many hours, very many years left and I give a number of reasons, I won't get into it I don't think this world has 20 years left really don't. Because all the signs of the end. When you see these things, Jesus said, know ye that the end is near, even at the door. When Sodom parades itself on the streets of Oma, and Port Rush and Bambridge, oh, when you see these things, know, know, The end is here. And just as Haman discovered in his day, so the forces of evil are about to discover in our day that God wins. And he's going to win completely. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this story that even by chapter 6, we're seeing the end already emerging. We're seeing the destruction of man's plans, ungodly man's plans. And we're seeing God's purposes and plans for his people and fulfillment of his promises emerge. Help us to read these things, not simply as historical stories, entertaining stories, but may we read these things and say, God, what an honor it is to be on the right side. Give us the faith to believe that the God who took care of his people in ancient Persia will still take care of them today. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.